<coughs> okay, I'll start then. Three, two, one. Welcome to the sixth episode of Sound On. In light of the recent developments across the globe with regard to the Black Lives Matter movement, we have decided to discuss the issue of racism and disobedience. Disobedience has been frequently employed as a means to express religion political convictions, whereby attention can be drawn towards achieving change. For instance, the civil rights movement in the US employed civil disobedience as a method of ending racial segregation. In the past week, while there has been an almost universal outpouring of support for anti-racism, there is also a proportion of society that is uncomfortable with protests because of incivility. Hence, we will be discussing the pervasiveness of racism across the globe and the suitability of methods employed to address it. Joining us this week is Nick, who is here on, his, who is here on this program for his second time. He has also brought along with him his friend Dylan to join us. Having Dylan with us this week is new because it is our first time having a guest not from Sheffield. So Dylan, thank you for joining us today. And could you introduce yourself to the audience? Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to join all of you today. Uh, so currently I'm a first year economics undergraduate at the University of Melbourne. Uh, just like Nick, I'm a Malaysian Indonesian as well. And uh, previously I completed a six month internship uh, attached to YB Nick Nazmi who is the Member of Parliament for the City of Wangsa constituency here in KL. Okay, great. Yeah, so um, in light of like your recent, um, your internship experience, I think that this topic would be quite something that perhaps you, you might have encountered through the various things that you have done during your internship because like it is sort of like, um, it's in, it involves like politics and all that. So let's move into our thoughts on the recent development. So obviously, and what I mean by the recent developments is what's been happening across the globe with regard to anti-racism, and which was precipitated by um, George Floyd's um, um, murder, I would say, very horrific incident. So what are your thoughts on the recent developments? Let's, let's start with Dylan then. I think I'm really happy to see that, you know, um, a lot of people, are, you know, um, awareness is being spread about the issue because um, perhaps some people weren't, weren't aware that, you know, it's still a pressing, uh, pressing uh, issue we face in society today. But what I would really like to see is that um, people to transfer this awareness to their, to their, to their home, to, you know, to realize that uh, the issues faced, and it's not only in the West, it's not only in, in the US or the UK, but um, I'm sure each country, they, they have their own issues. And uh, hopefully, you know, um, this uh, kind of uh, event, even though unfortunate, can um, bring, bring about a better good that will, that will improve uh, how things go in everyone's respective societies, I guess. Yeah, that, I think that's a very good point because that is why we've actually decided to talk about this topic. Mm -hmm. While this is something that the focus has mostly been on America and to a certain extent in like Britain, for example, but like because racism is ha something that happens across the globe, even in say Malaysia and Indonesia, which is why we've decided mm -hmm. to address this issue today. But so it's obvious that um, racism is very worrisome because it's really prevalent in society. I personally think that it is quite um, upsetting that and worrisome of course because um, this sort of awareness on racism very often just disappears after a while and it only reappears when something really horrific happens such as what happened in Minneapolis with regard to George Floyd so personally I do hope that this will be the last straw in which um, effective action will be taken to tackle racism globally um, after what has happened recently but what do you think about Nick uh, uh, what do you think Nick sorry um, what do you think about anti-racist principles, for example? Um, should it be consistent across all contexts? Um, I think the recent developments are increasingly, although this might be a dark time with the pandemic and with the killing of all these murders, I feel like um, one positive note to note that um, this movement is, is something that is, is, is finally happening. Um, and that we've obviously seen um, well, plenty of anti-racist movements across the years, um, stemming from the civil rights movement in the 1960s in the American context with uh, Martin Luther King Jr., all the way up to um, the election of President Obama and now uh, President Trump. So in, in, in that in the American context, but I think what's so special about anti-racist movements today is we have the help of social media. Um, and I think that's something... Um, that we'll also be addressing, I think, um, in, in the podcast. But um, 
So the presence of social media has allowed not just people in America, um, but also people across the globe to witness the sentiments, witness the real things. And obviously, um, a lot of this is perpetuated by false information, uh, misinformation, misappropriation. There's, there's so many different factors that, um, that technology and the media have over racist or anti-racist movements. But I think what's special, especially in this moment, that during a pandemic, um, the community or some communities rather are able to come together and um, appreciate each other regardless of um, their race and regardless of their ethnicity. Um, and I think that although, yeah, although there's so many bad things um, happening right now, um, the fact that this movement, um, some of the peaceful protests increasingly highlights the um, special movement that um, our generation is able to do because of the presence of technology and, and social media. Yeah, well, um, would you be willing to like briefly touch on what you think about um, the sort of progress that um, that social media kind of like brings towards the recent developments right now? I know that we'll be touching on this later on, but since it has yeah. been brought up, like, what are your thoughts on what's happening on social media right now? Um, I think in terms of social media, there's so many different aspects to see. There are people who... Um, I'll take the case study of, for example, the Blackout Tuesday example, where mm-hmm. uh, I think last Tuesday or something, everyone, almost everyone um, in our Instagrams um, posted a black picture um, tagging the Blackout Tuesday movement hashtag, and some people also tagging the Black Lives Mo- Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter hashtag, sorry. Um, and I think that, yes, the people who post uh, all of these pictures are people who definitely want to, to be part of the movement um, and people who, uh, by posting that picture, announce their, uh, that they're denouncing racism. But I also don't think that we should um, completely forget, forget those who choose not to post the Blackout Tuesday um, simply because they're not really against uh, racism, but simply because they either are not too aware of the issue or they don't want to stop any more controversy or they're not too familiar with the issue or perhaps they're not just um they're not interested in political participation and that's completely fine um it's better to not be involved than be a racist um so i think um there's two sides of the story for both who decide for people who decide to join um the movement in social media and uh, uh posting these blackout tuesday images but also for people who don't post i don't think um, we necessarily should condemn them as well because um, it's also their choice, their freedom to express whatever they want over social media. And um, I think by not posting um, some of these things, it's so much better than posting something which you might feel um, would stir up even further controversy um, or um, could lead to misinformation. So if there's a person who, for example, isn't aware of the issue, Mm-hmm. Um, and because that person isn't aware of the issue and that person doesn't want to post, then I think that's completely fine. Um, but for the people who uh, are aware of the issue, who post to want to further the movement, that's great as well. Okay, great. And before we move on, I'll just like quickly get Melissa into this converse- conversation. Like, what are your thoughts on this? Um, are, you, are you pleased with what is happening? Are you, I mean, do you, do you think that what is happening on social media, for instance, or the protests that are taking place across the globe, do you think that it is sufficient? I think right now with a lot of emotions running high about this issue, um, we get a lot of people condemning other people about what people have been posting. Even if you keep quiet, people are saying that, oh, if you keep quiet means you're supporting racism. That's what some people say. So um, I think because most people, most of the people in our social circle, they have been contributing to this movement through social media because there are no protests in Malaysia or Indonesia. So... Mm -hmm. um, so what I see in social media right now, there, there is sort of like a cycle of suppression where people are posting these things and then other people are posting things that are saying, oh no, you should not do this, you should do that. So people are just like policing other people. For example, right, um, I think Nick mentioned just now about the, the black picture and then mm-hmm. um, people are hashtagging um, Blackout Tuesday or Black Lives Matter and then people are saying that, oh, you're using the wrong hashtag because blah, blah, blah. And... I think that okay, it's a good it's a good thing that people are pointing out wrong things that people are doing. But 
I think it also silences other people and it makes people scared to voice out uh, about racism when they actually really want to. So, uh, for example, right, the issue about um, our Miss Universe Malaysia who said very inaccurate and mean things about the Black Lives yeah. Movement. Um, and she started receiving so much backlash from the public, which I'm sure will scar her career and probably like her mental issues for life as well. Um, which I'm not saying that it's a bad thing that people pointed out that she's wrong, but uh, in fact, it's a good thing. But I think what happened was that a lot of people started to jump onto the bandwagon and just continuously say bad things about her, which I felt wasn't really necessary. Like, I think other, um, other Miss Universes Malaysia were also saying like, oh, she's such a bad person in real life. And I think that's completely unnecessary. So I think it's good to focus back on the issue here because it's very easy to, you know, just follow our emotions. And because everyone is bashing her, we just follow and bash her as well. But I think it's important to focus back on the real issue, which is racism. So, um, yeah, so talking about media, right? I think because I mentioned just now that a lot of the protests um, are not ha happening in our area. So what we mm. see is what um, the media has been portraying. So um, maybe, Chris, do you think that... Um, do you think that the media has been inaccurately portraying these protests where they focus more on the violent protests instead of the peaceful ones? Absolutely, I think so. Because um, whilst I would, I would personally, I mean, based on what I've watched on TV and stuff like that, on like the BBC, CNN and all that, I think that there has been quite a good balance of um, the peaceful ones and the, the, the uh, slightly uncivil ones. Um, but I do think that a lot of attention has been given towards the uncivil protests, the one with a little bit of violence here and there. Um, I do think it's because um, probably the focus on that is there because um, perhaps it could potentially be some sort of like a media tool in which obviously when we focus on something that, is, that isn't ideal, for example, you get like better viewings, for example. But I do think that the media needs to do more in, in terms of like not just highlighting on the violence, but also talk more about the issue of racism as a whole. Um, I think that CNN, for example, has um, had guests on their show talking about why people have resorted to violence. And I think that that's actually a debate, that's actually a debate that needs to be talked about. Why do people actually resort to violence? But I do think that um, the focus should be more on racism as a whole, tackling racism, rather on focusing too much on the violent aspects of the protests. Because I do think that the protests have generally been peaceful in most regards. Um, if, um, if there has been any violence, I think that it should be condemned to a certain extent. But also we need to recognize why people actually resort to violence. So this, this brings up a much wider debate with regard to racism, which is what can we do to tackle it? and how can we actually create a long-lasting peace. So this brings us towards, this makes me feel like it's appropriate for us to talk about hacking racism through social movements. So, I mean, since we've, Mel, Mel has brought up the point about how there has been a divide between uh, peaceful protests, um, civil disobedience, and the more um, the less peaceful ones, which I would call uncivil disobedience. So I think that it's important to note that social movements are something, like protests in particular, it's something that has been employed um, very frequently across the globe. Um, and I think that um, George Floyd's murder uh, definitely triggered um, worldwide protests against racism. So I'd just like to ask Dylan, what, is, what are his thoughts? What are your thoughts on the protests that has been triggered by George Floyd's murder? I think I agree with a lot of your points that you just brought up. Uh, I do think that the media is sensationalizing a lot of um, what they put on our screens. And uh, yes, I, I think uh, pretty much about uh, most of the, everyone who has a connection to the internet knows, knows the name George Floyd by now. But what we don't know is that I, I believe, uh, I searched this up last night, since uh, his death, there have been 22 deaths related to uh, the protests and uh, this this is coming from both sides police officers and civilians. So I I Agree yes that you know uh, the death of George Floyd. It should be you know, it's um, it's, it's a wake-up call for us, but we shouldn't let this event Cause us to go into further mayhem, you know, 22 deaths. Those are 22 lives that um, 
if you ask me, we're lost for, for no reason. So it's, it's okay for us to protest, but we cannot resort to uh, you know, this, this kind of uh, disobedience. And uh, I feel a lot of people, some, some people are taking advantage of uh, the situation, you know, using his name, using the, mm-hmm. using the movement's name to uh, loot, to steal things. And uh, that's something we need to uh, readdress and we need to address as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think that, but based on what you mentioned, that, that was the word that I was looking for with regards to media. Um, so Dylan, mm-hmm. you brought up the word um, sensationalizing things. Mm-hmm. I think that's the word I was looking for. I think that it's very important to note that because I, I do think that, it, like, like I said, like I mentioned earlier on, like this, this Black Lives Matter movement, for example, I mean, these protests are talking about a bigger issue, for example. So for, for instance, what we've been seeing in the UK, for example, is that um, many people have resorted to taking down um, statues, um, busts of um, slave owners who, to a certain extent, contributed to the development of certain cities and to the, to the UK's development. Um, so, and lots of the debates are focusing on whether or not, is it right to take down those statues? Um, are we trying to rewrite history by taking down those statues? I personally don't think that that should be the debate. The debate is not about rewriting history because um, the, the, the contributions of these um, so-called slave owners, for instance, to society will definitely always be there. I mean, they, they have been immortalized in certain ways, but the issue should be about um, why is it that taking down these statues means so much to ethnic minorities, in particular blacks, because they view such statues as an affront towards their existence. They view existence. They view those statues as glorifying slave owners. I think that that should be the debate. The debate should be on why do people feel that there is a need to take down these things? Why do people feel that there is a need to rename streets? Why, why do people feel that we shouldn't glorify these slave owners? We shouldn't immortalize them through those statues. So I think that the debate on that regard is actually lacking. People are focusing on them taking down statues, uh, 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 um, spraying graffitis on statues and stuff like that. Uh, I think that it's important to recognize that the debate is much wider than that. It's not just about causing, it's not just about ch- taking down things. It's also about addressing why do people feel that such things are in the front to the existence. So like I've, uh, I mentioned earlier on, um, the protests have mostly been peaceful, but there has been some violence, um, which involves like looting, as we've seen in Minneapolis. Um, there has been burning of shops and etc. Um, so this brings us towards like that philosophical um, divide between disobedience, which is civil disobedience versus and civil disobedience. So very briefly, like when we talk about civil disobedience, it's basically um, about having peaceful protests, for example, um, your willingness to surrender to police when the police comes after you. So proponents of civil disobedience, such as um, there's this um, political theorist by the name of John Rawls, he would argue that um, one of his arguments would be that civil disobedience is essentially very important in achieving change. Acting civilly is important because it is a way to build trust with the group that you're trying to make change occur. And on the other hand, there are those people, and also, I mean, um, John Rawls would argue that um, acting civilly would be a means of establishing, establishing trust in society. It's, 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 it's less divisive, basically. But uh, on the other hand, some theorists would argue that uncivil disobedience is necessary because um, acting civilly is not something that is not your obligation if you're not treated equally in society. Essentially, um, you know, if you do not, if you're not being treated well in society, if you're not being listened to, you have a right to act uncivilly, to resort to deviance in order to gain visibility. So many of the people who are acting uncivilly right now would argue that, um, you know, um, they decide to act uncivilly because um, they have acted civilly in the past through like civil disobedience and all that, but their voices have clearly not been heard. That's what they would argue. So I would think that, um, so my question is right now, is criticizing people for acting uncivilly, is criticizing people for um, um, resorting to violence, making us lose sight of the core issues then? I mean, so I think it's well established that my view is that we are losing sight of the issue by focusing on the, the violence that occurs here and there. But what do you guys think? Um, what do you think, Nick? Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you brought up in terms of um, distinguishing between civil disobedience and civil. Um, sorry, what was the other thing? Civil disobedience uncivil. and yeah, un- and uncivil disobedience. I think that's really important because 
on one hand, um, there are lots of people, especially I'll, I'll take the UK context, where there are lots of people who say um, these removal of statues and everything, that's damage to property. Um, but there are also um, other people, especially ethnic minorities, who view this as we were property a few years ago, a few, I mean, decades ago. Um, our mm-hmm. ancestors were property, and therefore we have the right to remove that property that has been standing over here for the last God knows how long it's been standing there for. Um, so it's, it's, it's that buildup of tension, I think, which causes that social movement to um, have violence in the first place. Now, the question whether violence is justified or not, um, I'm still in a bit of a crossroads whether mm-hmm. it is or it's not. Obviously, violence and hurting businesses, uh, some, some of the things that have been highlighted by the media, um, even though it's sensationalized, it is well, to some extent, quite factual that um, Mm -hmm. a lot of business owners, not just um, major business owners, but also small businesses um, in America, um, black businesses, Asian businesses, minority businesses have also been looted as a result of um, this thing. And I think that ties back to Dylan's original point um, in the sense that some people are, in fact, using his name um, to kind of perpetuate and take advantage of the entire situation. Um, and I, I, and I think that because of what's happening in, um, in the past few weeks, and, and I think people are starting to wake up and people are starting to realize um, that, yes, uh, uncivil disobedience or looting and um, ha- having lots of violence in, in cities and towns is, is something that um, a lot of people can resonate with because they've been really angry um, and... The, the question that they have in their mind is when is this going to stop? How is this going to stop? And what change can the government do to make it stop? Um, and I think that's the entire concept that has been confused around their heads that we don't know when this is going to stop. So mm-hmm. what do we do? And their kind of self-defense me- mechanism is yes. looting and protesting. But But on the other hand, I think people are also starting to realize that oh, you know, we're actually damaging our own businesses, we're damaging our own economy. Um, Mm. And then we also have to, um, we also have to resonate, especially during times of this pandemic. So in in, in my opinion, I feel like um, the violence, violence in terms of looting isn't necessarily justified. That's just my opinion. Okay. But I also Mm. have the opinion that, um, that, that people have a, they have a reason because of their confusion to loot and to protest and all of these yeah, things. So, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think the point that you're basically also, um, the, the arguments that you've just made basically links us to the point about um, future progress on race relations. I mean, future progress on race relations anywhere across the world, mm. in the United States or in the UK or in Malaysia or Indonesia, for example, um, future progress um, on race relations require cooperation on all sides. But which is why I think that it's important to note that um, I mentioned um, John Rawls early on. He argues that um, um, he believes that civil disobedience is most important because the use of violence will antagonize fellow citizens, which will endanger chances of cooperation in the future. And I think it's important to note that based on what I've learned in university as well, I think that uh, Martin Luther King himself did acknowledge that um, you know, um, acting uncivilly would to a certain extent be futile because um, the oppressed minority could potentially be, um, I would say, quote-unquote, outnumbered and outgunned by the majority if they resort to violence, which basically means that, which, which is why he advocated acting civilly, um, using peaceful means and all that. But on the other hand, um, there's this other theorist by the name of, like, um, um, there are other theorists who would argue that um, you, you, we need to resort to violence in order to gain visibility. So what do you think? I want to bring um, Melissa into this. Um, do you think that um, a little bit of violence, for instance, acting, does incivility destroy trust among races? Yeah, I think that, I think, okay, back towards our conversation about media, right? About how mm-hmm. I feel like the media is focusing more on the violent ones instead of the non, instead of the peaceful mm-hmm. protests. So I feel like that that shows that media has been, like throughout all these years, throughout many, many decades, right? Media has been the number one reason of why racism exists in the first place. Because the media likes to portray, for example, like black people as 
um, rapists, as criminals, murderers. And now with the protest, it is happening again because people all over the world are, uh, are seeing like, oh, you know, look, black people are being violent again. So this is why media plays such an important role in our lives. And I think racism is a deep-rooted problem and media has been contrib contributing a lot to it. And so, for example, um, people, people, are being, people all over the world are being brainwashed that black people are criminals. And even the black people themselves think that they are, they are even afraid of their own communities because of this many, many years of brainwashing. So I think like so many decades ago, the mind, mind manipulation that the government, the US government or probably governments all over the world has been doing is that um, they have been putting, I think it's called systemic racism or something yeah, like that, where, that's right. where so many years of putting the blacks in a disadvantaged position compared to the white people or people from other races, right? And all of these years of discrimination has put the blacks in a place that is second towards uh, white mm -hmm. people. So yeah, I think that um, it is important that maybe you can say that violence um, captures attention to, to the protests, but Absolutely. I feel like, I feel like, again, the media is, pl is playing a very big role in this. Yeah, I think that the media is definitely, I mean, uh, with their focus on the, 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 the few violent aspects of the protests, for example, um, in, in, the, in these anti-racist anti movements, I think that they are perpetuating stereotypes that uh, minorities are a threat to safety in society. But I think that it's important to note that uh, many people resort to violence, um, acting uncivilly, re resorting to uncivil disobediences, because like I said early on, um, it is obvious that past disobedience used to express frustration at the inequalities that minorities face, or for instance, in this regard, blacks face, was shown um, a lack of seriousness by the government as while the black, blacks did eventually receive constitutional essentials, such as in the civil rights movements, for example, um, government measures to address the prevalence of racial prejudice remains um, insufficient. Um, when I talk about racial prejudice, it's not just about their position in the socioeconomic um, structure of the country, but racial prejudice also includes how they are treated by government officials, such as police. I mean, um, um, it's important to note that ethnic minorities, in particular, um, for example, Blacks, um, in the US are more likely to be treated um, harshly by police. They are, they are more likely to be treated um, um, harshly, as we can see with regard to George Floyd. Um, and also in the UK, for example, it's, been, it's important to note that um, blacks are often targeted by the police in terms of like stop and search and stuff like that. So um, what, what do you think then, Dylan? Um, I mean, so basically, I think what I'm saying is that I do agree with the sentiment that um, uh, minorities have tried time and time again through peaceful means. Whilst they have been hurt, they have not been hurt sufficiently. They've not been hurt sufficiently by why they'll be treated equally in all aspects. So what do you think? Do you think that um, the, the incivility in these protests are justified to a certain extent? Well, from the other point of view, you, you can understand why uh, perhaps those in the minor minorities might feel like, you know, um, they have to resort to these means to actually get their voices heard. But um, personally, I think a lot of like the yeah, situation today, you can say is much better than it was uh, half a century ago, mm -hmm. and I think it takes it takes time for things to change. Things can't can't change overnight. You know, uh, social constructs can't change overnight. So, I I think it's something that will change over the course of time. Like, uh, like you know, for now you could you could be said that for the older generation, we look at us as you know very liberal. Well, we, we might say, you know, their views are very conservative. And, you know, uh, in, a, in a few decades from now, we, we will be the ones to uh, seem conservative in, in, uh, relative to the new generation. So I think it's, yes, we play a part in changing societal perspectives. But um, it's something that it, protesting and, you know, uh, getting a voice and being heard is one thing. But sometimes it's very hard to change the mindsets of uh, society as a whole and that's something I, I, I think we have to uh, leave it to time. Yeah.
Yes, I think that it's very difficult to change the mindset of society. I think that, which is why, like, I mean, for instance, the civil rights movement in the US, it took them a um, relatively long number of years in order to achieve the change that they wanted to achieve in society. Okay. But um, there is an argument right now. I mean, like Mel brought up um, the stereotype, for instance, that minorities, for instance, are often portrayed as people that count, that are a threat to safety. And there is a worry that um, the incivility, that the incivility that's been happening in recent um, days, for example, could perpetuate that impression that minorities or blacks are a threat to safety. But I think that, but there is an argument by people who think that uncivil disobedience is um, um, necessary in the sense that it does not mean that acting uncivilly, it does not mean that you will be a threat to society. In a certain extent, I think that it's important to note, for instance, I mean, long before there's this movement called the suffragette movement in the past whereby um, women, it's basically a movement that actually fought for women to have the right to vote. They did resort to um, incivility in order to get their voices heard. But the moment they were granted their rights, for example, the moment that the suffragette movement succeeded in guaranteeing women the right to vote, women um, were able to cooperate with men in society. So the, the argument is basically that it does not mean that a period of violence would make you incapable of cooperating with people in the future, with, you, with, with your basically, with your peers in the future. What do you think about that? Um, those people who are, are resorting to uncivil disobedience right now would argue that, look, once we have received our rights, once we are treated equally in society, not just once all sorts of like racial prejudice is eliminated, we can resort to returning to the civic bonds of friendship. What do you think about that view? Do you think that is actually possible? I, I understand where, you know, uh, that notion comes from that, you know, uh, mm -hmm. we're doing this right now to secure our rights. And once, once, once our demands are guaranteed, then we will be law-abiding citizens. But I, I don't think that's the only means of um, achieving change, you know. Uh, there are many other forms of protest that, uh, you know, people can uh, take part in. Like uh, in, in Malaysia, for example, you know, um, a few years back, the, the whole country got together to combat uh, corruption and, you know, uh, from the Prime Minister's office. And we witnessed a change in government uh, for the first time since the country's independence without a single drop of blood being shed. And, and personally, I think that's a great achievement uh, because, uh, you know, uh, these kind of things, if, if you witness it in history of the world, it's not, it's not a very peaceful uh, thing. So I think in the, in the current day and age, we can resort to peaceful means of achieving change because with the power that social media has, uh, we can hear more voices and eventually those people who are in power, yes, they might, might, they might seem to answer to themselves, but in the end of the day, we are the people and uh, no matter how uh, unlikely it seems, we are the ones who control society indirectly. So given time, you know, if, if, if we persist in changing the social constructs and, and, and the way uh, in the unfairness that we see in society, eventually things will change. So I, I don't think it's necessary to resort to uh, uncivil disobedience. Yeah, but I think to wrap up that aspect then about social movements in uh, tackling racism uh, and with regard to disobedience in particular, uh, I think that we, we've kind of like achieved quite a nuanced argument here. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we do recognize that personally for me, I do recognize, I, I'm quite supportive to a certain extent. I mean, I, I understand the plight of people as of why they see the need to resort to uncivil disobedience. But I think that we've achieved a very nuanced argument over here, which is that we recognize why incivility to a certain extent is necessary, but we do also feel that there will be ramifications because of violence. And it's impossible to avoid those ramifications because people can feel that people are justified to also feel that incivility is a threat towards um, their livelihoods, for instance. So I think we've achieved a nuanced argument there. We recognize why both regards are acceptable to people. Um, so let's move on now because we've tackled the issue of social media in the very beginning and we've also talked about it in this um, section. Um, let's move to about um, our personal experiences then or our personal witnessing of racism. So um, what do you think, Melissa? What do you think about racism in Malaysia? Have you experienced anything that's personal? Have you witnessed anything that is particularly worrisome for you? I think, okay, so I came from a, a Kebangsaan school, so like government schools mm -hmm. from primary and secondary school. And although I was the minority for being Chinese, I've never actually, maybe I'm lucky, 
to never have actually experienced direct racism and nothing that stopped me from achieving what I want. And in terms of uh, stereotypes, right, I think we can all agree that uh, Malaysians, we are not free of ra uh, racist stereotypes. So, um, for example, they say that our oh, Chinese are very deceitful. So that, that is an example of a stereotype. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's very hard to break away from, from these stereotypes because it has been in our minds and it has been passed down from generation to generation, right? But I think for me, like in my opinion, the younger generation is more free of these stereotypes compared to, um, say, our parents or our grandparents. So, um, actually, Chris, what do you think? Like, um, do you think segregations of races at a young age, right, is contributing to this, to this problem where, because in Malaysia, we have um, vernacular schools, so we have uh, Kebangsaan, Jenis, China, and Jenis Tamil. So, that is, does that contribute to the problem where we do not know how to integrate properly with people from different races? Absolutely. I, I do think that, I think that that is, uh, it, it is, it does contribute towards um, problems with regard to integration in uh, our society because um, whilst there are, for instance, if you were to go to a vernacular school, for example, a Chinese school, for example, um, whilst there will be non-Chinese in that school, for instance, there will be a number, but the vast majority of people in that school would come from a particular race. So I do think that that, would, that is a problem with regard to integration because if kids from a very young age, I mean, people often argue that kids, children are colorblind, for example. They, they, they have this ability to be free of any sort of like ingrained kind of racism whereby skin doesn't matter they can befriend anybody and I, so in that regard i do think that vernacular schools is a problem to a certain extent with regard to integration because when kids are colorblind and you put them in a school or in a society whereby they only mix with one race they only mix with predominantly one race it becomes a problem because when they come out of that bubble for example another race could be seen as something that is different to them, something that is strange to them. And they do not really, they will not really have the capacity to be able to integrate that well after spending so many years in a closed community. But I do, but personally for me, whilst that might be a problem, I don't think that it is something that is too worrisome to a certain extent. Because um, whilst, um, because they, it's important to note that in Malaysia, for instance, I went to a Kabangsan school, I went to a state school, but because my city is a Chinese-majority city, uh, my school was predominantly Chinese. Um, so I don't think vernacular schools is the issue, basically, because I went to a state school, I went to a Kabangsan school, but most of my friends were Chinese as well. So I think that pinpointing vernacular schools as an issue towards um, the problems of integration is, I think it's a flawed argument, but I do recognize why it is an issue, because on a balance, it is perhaps more believable or more conceivable that um, it, it would be more difficult for people who are in a system that is meant to cater to predominantly one particular group would face more of an issue. But personally, I don't think that it's too much of a problem. I think that what needs to be done is that um, the government should take in more initiatives to ensure that no matter what school you go to, you have this capacity to integrate and mix with whatever races. So that is my problem. I mean, that is my take on this. But I think that the bigger problem with Malaysia is that racism is just ingrained in our society. Um, it's not just about the state, but it's also amongst people, which is why I think that having children integrated at a young age is very, very important. So in that regard, schools can be something that can achieve change, like more, I don't know, more multiracial schools, for example. Um, because I think that stereotypes in Malaysia is very ingrained in the sense that, I mean, I mean, if you look at, for instance, I've seen signs about rent, rental, for example, where my, um, it's a sign that goes something like um, room to let, for instance, um, preferably Chinese, for example. Now, that is an ingrained racism over here. I mean, I mean we live with stereotypes in Malaysia. I mean, um, Chinese people, for instance, there's a stereotype that Chinese are intelligent, but um, they are less, um, they're a bit heartless, for instance. There is that stereotype, for, for instance. And so, so, I mean, these, these sort of like racist tropes in Malaysia are often set without people realizing. And it is worrisome that people do not recognize racism at the time, which is why I want to bring in um, Dylan, 
into this. Um, what do you think about these racist tropes? Do you think that um, Malaysians, for instance, or racism is inherently um, ingrained in Malaysian society, or is it just that people don't recognize that what you're saying is racist? Well, well, if you ask me, I think a lot of the stereotypes we have today, they, they're a direct consequence of British rules you know, decades ago, where uh, they employed a system of divide and conquer. So basically, uh, they kept the Malays in the kampung and in the villages, and then uh, they brought the uh, Indians to, 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 uh, to work in the estates. And then uh, the Chinese, of course, uh, some of them came here to trade. So what, what happened as a result of you know, this, this type of system is that a lot of the Malays, by, by the time we achieve independence, the Chinese dominate, dominate the economy and the Malays were left in the, uh, in the village. So, that, so that's probably where these kind of stereotypes stem from because you, know, you, you can't just make stereotypes up. They, they do come from somewhere. So I think these, these uh, stereotypes have been ingrained in our uh, country since independence. And um, I, I like to uh, disagree on one small point uh, that you brought up is that uh, vernacular schools are perhaps a flawed argument because for me, I think it's very important that we grow up having uh, friends from you know different groups from different races because uh, what is the likelihood that uh, let's say a person who's been to a Chinese school their whole life be fluent in the national language or, or, or be able to uh, you know socialize with a Malay friend for example because they, they've only learned the language in a in a, in a classroom setting perhaps and um, when they when they come out of their social bubble. Uh, then language barrier becomes a, a, a thing that, you know, uh, that uh, separates us, I guess. So, yeah, I think that's one point. Uh, I, I do feel that it's, education is a really, a, it's a core point that yeah. we need to tackle. Yeah. Yes, I, I get you to that point because um, personally for me, I, I, I personally, I think that, for instance, in my conversations that I've had with Nick many times in university, I think that he would, he would know that my view is that I personally am, in preference of like a single stream kind of school in mm-hmm. Malaysia, whereby um, there is that whereby um, um, schools should not be classified based on the medium of instruction. Whereby, I mean, I'm a strong proponent of like the national language, for example. Um, so personally, I do think that um, vernacular schools. I mean, we should have only a single stream school. But my point was that I think that so I I, I, I recognize your argument. In fact, I'm in total agreement with your argument that vernacular schools could be an issue in that regard because. Like I mentioned early on that we would be um, people in vernacular schools are more likely to stay in a social a certain social group until they're like 12 13 years old but I do think that um, because the argument that I made early on is because I think that um, this is something that's somewhat emotional to people I mean people feel that vernacular schools are a part of their identity to a certain extent so I was trying to make a more nuanced argument to a certain extent that um, whilst vernacular schools can be a problem it is flawed in a certain way because we do have national schools that are just filled with one particular race, like the schools I've been to. But so to, to bring you into that point then, um, so do you think that Malaysia should have a single stream then? I mean, like in order to tackle racism in Malaysia, like do you think that, I think that we're all in agreement that um, in order to tackle racism, we should start when the kid, when the children are young. So do you think that um, um, a single stream school would be essential then? Uh, definitely, because I think what is stopping that from happening is that there's an element of distrust. You know, um, a lot of parents mm-hmm. feel that Chinese schools are more rigorous. Uh, you know, they, they prepare the child uh, better than perhaps Kolkata schools. So, mm-hmm. I think what we need to do is not abolish certain as uh, abolish this SJKs or you know scholar uh, agama, but we need to basically abolish everything and and restart restart at a new uh, stream. So basically, it's to set to set uh, an equal footing for everyone, and you know, uh, there's a big issue for for the minority. Would say, you know, uh, the our kids learning uh, our mother tongue language, that's a right guaranteed to us. Yes, so that so we should uh, implement that, incorporate that into a new stream where you know, there'll be certain electives uh, based on on a, on a parent's choice, where perhaps you can learn Mandarin, Tamil, or uh, you know, Pendidikan Islam, and all of that. So. I think that is a big issue because social integration, a country cannot be united if, if its people are not socially integrated. Absolutely. I think that is a very good point. And I think that, that basically you brought up the idea of like British rule in Malaysia, whereby um, certain races were carried in certain places, which is the point I made about how I went to a Kabangsan school, but uh, my school was like predominantly Chinese. I, I dare say about 80% Chinese, for instance. I think it's because of how 
I live in the city in like um, PJ, which is a predominantly Chinese city to a certain extent. So I think that um, um, it, it goes further than just vernacular schools, for instance. I think it's about how our cities are structured, how our, our towns are structured in a way where we have outlet, we have pockets of um, land in Malaysia whereby a certain race only holds a, a huge majority in that area, which is why we end up having, for instance, Kabangsa and schools, which are meant to cater to all races, but are just predominantly um, um, filled with students from one race. So I think that, so do you think that this is a bigger problem with regard to our colonial history? Then? That um, it's not just about schools, but it's also about how we have many parts of our country that is just not integrated, that is just dominated by one race. We, do, we lack mixed cities, for instance. I think, you know, um, all of us, myself included, we, we kind of live in our own social bubbles because if you ask me, uh, I think a really eye-opening experience for me was during my internship where I got to interact on the ground with, um, mm -hmm. let's say, members of the B40 community, which I perhaps would not have the chance in, in, in my, in my uh, daily life. I think there's a big disconnect there. And uh, this is just within, within, you know, an urban setting, within KL itself. And I think the disconnect is much bigger when you go outside the city, you know, where um, I think a lot of people don't realize that Malay is still the main, uh, what do you call it, uh, the language of interaction between all the communities. And uh, it's, it's, it's something quite hard to uh, tackle because you don't know how to, it, it becomes like an urban rural divide per se where, you know, uh, there's a certain, uh, yeah, basically, it's, it's basically like two different uh, societies that, uh, that, that we can observe in a country. Okay, then. All right, that's a good point. And uh, let's move on a little bit. Um, let's bring Nick into this argument. Um, Dylan, as well, um, if you have anything to add. Um, what about racism in Indonesia, for example? Um, are Indonesians less divided than Malaysians? Do, do you think that, that that assertion is correct? Um, if, if I can, could I add a little bit on the other, the previous point yeah, slightly? Sure. I, I was, I was just thinking that, um, when, when, when y'all brought up the the argument about vernacular schools, I think it's, 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 it's much, much wider than vernacular schools, which is why you, you brought up about how your towns and your cities are, are structured. And I think that's really important because, um, through British colonial rule, um, we've been separated into different communities, different towns, different cities. For example, uh, Taiping, Perak. We all know that as a Chinese mining area. Mm -hmm. um, we all know that certain areas in KL, just mentioned the name, everyone knows that's a Chinese area. Everyone knows that's a, 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 a Malay area. For example, Sitiawangsa, everyone knows that's a Malay area. Yeah, um, like, like Charas, everybody knows it's Chinese. Yeah, right? so... so <laughs> yeah, and I, and 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 also because um, I think I think it's really important to highlight that segregation. Um, I don't think Malaysians are inherently racist, for example, but that segregation between specific communities, and also because I took um, a module on um, urban planning on cities in my first year, and I did an analysis on the apartheid movement in South Africa and how um, post-apartheid. Um, um, divide is still present in, in South Africa and I think in some extent that could be applied to Malaysia as well where um, colonial um, colonial um, movement movements have placed people into certain communities segregation which has inherently continued over generations and generations and because of that um, it's not just the schools we go to but the schools that we go to based on the people we interact with are based on where we live um, and in the specific towns and communities. And because of that, um, we're completely stuck in our own social bubble. And if I could say some people are even stuck on their, their own race, um, which is why, yes, it is completely racist to have a, let's say, preference for a Chinese, for example, if you want to uh, rent a room. But on the other side, it's also decades of racism, of uh, systemic segregation that people don't even know how to interact with the other race, which is probably another reason that contributes to why they prefer that, that certain race, because it's like we don't even know how to talk or communicate between our own people, our own nation. Mm -hmm. um, I think segregation is increasingly, especially in Malaysia, it's not, yeah, it's not necessarily, 
it is definitely racism, no doubt about that. But it's also perpetuated by decades and decades of segregation. And now the reason why I also bring that up is because in Indonesia, um, it's homogenous. It's, it's definitely more homogenous in terms of the language. Um, in in all schools, you are taught Indonesian. Um, in all areas of Indonesia, of Indonesia, you learn Indonesian in school, whether you go to a public school or whether you go to a private school. So, um, for example, I grew up and in Jakarta, I went to an international school. I was taught Indonesian and I learned civic studies mandatory from the Indonesian government. So I learned two subjects and I also learned religion uh, in primary school in the Indonesian language. Um, so because it's mandatory to take religion in Indonesia, it's mandatory to take civic studies in Indonesia or PK, uh, PKN, we call that Pendidikan uh, Kewarga Negaraan. That's a mandatory subject uh, for all Indonesians, I think up to middle school, um, civic studies. Um, and also Indonesian is mandatory, whether you go to an international or a private school. So if you're Indonesian and you grew up here, 99.5% you will be able to speak Indonesian. Um, and that is why whenever you go abroad, uh, let's say as an Indonesian, if you go abroad and you find someone else, regardless of what race they are, because Indonesians are ethnically diverse. There are over 800 ethnic groups in Indonesia, but in terms of language, we're quite homogenous, even though there are lots of other local dialects. Um, which is why whenever you go abroad and you see an Indonesian, whether it's Chinese, whether it's Javanese, whether it's uh, Sundanese, or whether you're from um, some other island um, in Indonesia that people don't even know about, once you speak Indonesian, it's like it's like you can resonate with one another because mm -hmm. uh, it's there's some traditional aspect to it that makes you uh, um, makes you feel. As, 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 as part, like you're connected. However, what I do want to highlight is that because of this connection and also perhaps due to colonial and how uh, Indonesia got its independence, Indonesia is definitely way more nationalistic than Malaysia. Um, okay. Because Malaysia, independence-wise, um, uh, you know, they got through the British. We had a whole parade and ceremony at Dataran Merdeka. Uh, we had an entire uh, sing the Union Jack for the final time and then sing Nagaraku. In Indonesia, we didn't have that. We had to fight. Um, historically, we had to fight for our independence, essentially. Okay. And um, because of that nationalism, Indonesians are also quite protective within their own bubble in terms of their own nationality. So for example, I'm half Malaysian, half Indonesian. My dad is Ch uh, Malaysian Chinese with a, and I have a Chinese name, whilst my mom is Javanese. Um, so a lot of Indonesians couldn't get the fact that I had a Chinese name. Uh, they didn't, um, because in Indonesia, because of um, the Suharto period, all the Chinese Indonesians had to change their names to Indonesianize their names. So a lot of people couldn't get my name. Um, a lot of people told me to go back to Malaysia. Um, a lot of people didn't understand that I was uh, born and raised in that country. Um, and I experienced that throughout. I received those kind of questions and experienced those kind of prejudices against me because I was not pure Indonesian um, throughout my entire life in Indonesian, uh, in Indonesia. Um, so I wouldn't say that Indonesians are perhaps uh, inherently less than Malaysia to answer the question uh, than Malaysians, but I also think that Indonesians um, are more nationally incorporated within each other and there's less segregation. Okay, great. And um, let's move on to now um, our experiences as international students. So I think all of us over here are international students. Um, so um, let me bring in Melissa to this, to, into this conversation. Um, so um, as international students, um, do, do you feel that you're treated differently? Um, do you feel like as if um, at times when we're in, say, the UK or in Australia, we are more, we feel a little bit inferior? What do you think? Yeah, so personally, um, I don't think I've ever experienced any like racist comments from my friends who are from other countries. But what um, what I really see from myself is that I always feel very inferior towards uh, the locals, to the British. So, um, for example, if I'm put in the room with uh, full of locals, uh, British, uh, compared to me being put in a room full of Malaysians, I would 
be more, much more likely to speak up if I'm in a room with Malaysians. So again, I think it's more of um, a mental, like a mental stigma that I know that I feel that I am less. Uh, I feel like I'm inferior towards uh, the whites. So yeah, so that is my experience in the UK. How about you, Dylan? You study in Australia, right? Uh, despite only being there for one month, I, I did have the uh, chance to experience how I was over there. I don't think it's so much of racism, but it's uh, having a social barrier between international and domestic students because a lot of the domestic students, you know, they uh, they went, their friends, they went to high school together with their friends, and, and by the time they reach university, they, you know, they, they already have their group of friends that they're kind of comfortable with. and. You know, uh, for a lot of international students, they might not be very confident with their command of English, and you know, uh, so they, they can find it often. They can often find it intimidating, you know, when interacting with locals. So I think there's uh, we're not scared of one another per se. We just we, there's this social barrier that uh, you know people aren't like they don't want to they don't know what to talk about. They don't know how to talk to each other basically. Yeah, I think that that's a very good point because, uh, for instance, very often people, like based on what I've heard in, in Britain, for example, um, a lot of people, a lot of international students, so they feel like as if um, um, their command of English might not be the greatest and uh, they worry that um, um, they will not be able to be understood. So as a result of that, many of them either try their utmost to um, integrate with to, to conform to the so-called needs or to, to conform to what is expected of them in, in Britain or, or either they just choose not to integrate at all. They choose not to mix with um, the locals over there out of fear that out of this sort of sense of inferiority. So I think that this is a problem for international students. I think that um, a lot of us basically, um, we leave everything behind in our home country in order to like, um, expand our horizons in a foreign country, not just for the education, which is great, but also um, to learn more, basically. Um, but I think that that's where many international students lose out because they do not mix enough with people in uh, the, the country that they study in. And as a result, they only receive the education, but their, hor but their horizon isn't really broadened significantly because they still mix with only their uh, fellow citizens. So uh, this is where I'd like to bring Nick into this argument. Um, but do you also, but do you think that there is a problem? This is a problem because to a certain extent, um, locals in countries such as um, the UK or in Australia or even in the US, for instance, do you think that they are the ones who are also contributing towards this feeling of inferiority among international students because they don't put in enough effort to talk to international students? I think I think I, I agree with all of your points. To be honest, um, there's definitely a problem. There's definitely a systematic problem where international students are, in fact, um, somewhat sidelined, um, but they're also somewhat um, not interacting enough with uh, locals, and locals aren't interacting enough with international students. I think that pretty much happens a lot uh, in every single country, especially in the UK. And especially, I think in our university as well, uh, we go to Sheffield, there's 35% of us are international students, but um, there are plenty of that 35% who don't interact with um, locals other than when they go to Sainsbury's or when they go to Tesco's and they pay a cashier and sometimes that's even a robot. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think that's a problem. However, I don't necessarily think that's racism. And I think that's why mm -hmm. I go yes. um, back to the point of segregation. And I think that it's because that there is increasing boom of economies from the global South in the past 10 or 20 years, especially in China. Um, over the past 20 years, it, their economy has just exploded in and now has enabled um, some of their citizens um, not just in the global south and in, in China as well, to send their children, millennials and, and, and the previous generation before that, uh, to send their children to the UK to study. And I think because of that boom, it's complete rapid expansion that it comes to the point where locals don't know how there's an increase in influx this 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 much of an influx uh, of students coming in and international students as well 
um, because of this influx, have tons of other international student buddies who they can resonate with better. So I think that's definitely a fundamental problem that needs to be solved. But I don't necessarily think that that's racism. Some of it can be caused by exclusion yeah. and racism, but I don't think the inherent fundamental problem is yeah, I, racism. I think it's yeah. just segregation. I agree. I don't, I don't think that that's inherently racist. Yes, then. If I could just add a bit there. I think, you know, uh, it's, yeah, like, like I said, it's not a matter of racism. It's more about social integration. And if you ask me, I think it's like, it's a, it's a perpetual cycle because uh, the, if you ask the locals, they'll feel like, oh, you know, it's the international students, they only stick to themselves. They're not willing to, you know, uh, socialize with others. So, so that's why we, we kind, of, there's kind of, there's kind of a barrier there and we stay away from them. And then the international students would, on the other hand, say, oh, you know, it's uh, very hard for us to interact with locals and they don't seem very keen on talking to us. So that's why we, we, we kind of avoid them. So there's this perpetual cycle i think where both sides misunderstand each other there's a certain you know uh level of ignorance perhaps and yeah it boils down to social integration basically okay great so i think that we're reaching to a we're reaching the end of this session this podcast session um so let's wrap up with melissa then um what do you think can be done to raise awareness and end racism is there anything more that we can do yeah i think so I feel like uh, in this day and age, right, everyone has a voice thanks to social media. And for example, like four of us, like we are nobodies, right? We are students. But then we have the internet to talk about something that is close, about an issue that's close to our heart. And I feel like everyone should, um, should speak out on this to continue making this uh, movement where it's, where it's not just, you know, a few weeks where everyone's making noise, but then it dies down. So I feel like it should be something that is ongoing to completely eradicate racism, which is, I think, it's not an easy thing to do. So I think for the past few weeks, social media has been a very overwhelming space with all the information and possibly all the negativity that's coming in because of this issue. And I think personally for me, I was very conflicted um, between wanting to contribute to the cause or wanting to stay informed about this issue and also mm-hmm. wanting to take a break from social media because of this sudden influx of so much information, especially because at that time it was during our exam period, right? So I think it's also important to point out that it's okay to take a break from this issue if you want to mm-hmm. avoid burnout because what we want is something sustainable that can, su- something sustainable that can, allow us to push forward this issue towards many, many years to come. So, yeah, do you guys have anything else to add? Yeah, I think that um, all of us basically have a part to do in this. I mean, um, even if we don't necessarily feel very vocal about these issues, or we're not that woke, you know, um, I think we all can play our our minor parts in this, such as um, politely calling out racist tropes, um, even correcting ourselves whenever we, correcting ourselves whenever we realize that something we say could be interpreted as um, borderline racism. And I think it's important to recognize that. Um, When you call out somebody, I think that it should be done politely um, as a means to, especially when they do not recognize that what they're saying is racist. But um, um, essentially, I think that all of us can do our part, which is calling it out on a personal level. We need to educate ourselves, be aware of racism across the globe, uh, be aware of racist policies and stuff like that. And I think that we need to break out of our bubbles, our social groups, if they are too homogenous. But obviously, that's not that easy as we've established. But if that opportunity comes, we should seize it. And, and the final point I'd just like to add is that our outrage at racism must be universal, whereby racism does not just constitute police brutality or bias in the criminal justice system. It's also about fair equality of opportunities. So racism... Being anti-racist requires us to believe that everybody deserves to be treated equally on all fronts. We cannot subscribe to one principle of being anti-racist, um, but treat that, an, that anti-racist principle as something that's expendable, whereby we hold one belief towards, for instance, we are outraged at what's happening in America, but we're not outraged at what's happening in Malaysia. So essentially, anti-racist principles are not expendable, and our outrage at racism has to be universal. Um, before we wrap up, before Melissa wraps I, up, um, do any of you have anything else to say? Dylan, can I have like a little, yeah. Um, so I was just, I just want to say that um, the main thing that causes racism is because one group doesn't understand another group. 
and another group thinks that the other group has done something wrong. It's basically based on either two or more sides where people don't understand each other. And so, especially in Malaysia, if some people, if you've never celebrated Hari Raya or if you've never celebrated Chinese New Year, if you've never celebrated Deepavali, um, I'm pretty sure you've got friends in those ethnicities. Ask them about, um, I think cultural awareness is, is, is just so important to combating racism. Whether you're a racist or not, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter. As long as you have that knowledge of cultural awareness um, and you're willing to accept that there are other cultures and there are other traditions. So, I mean, maybe this is something to keep in view for next year as well when COVID's over. So if, 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 if let's say you're Chinese and you've never celebrated Hari Raya or if you've never put on a Baju Melayu before, mm-hmm. try and do that. If, if you've never celebrated Deepavali, ask your friends about it because it's, it's not just about racism, it's about understanding each other's cultures and eventually that will combat racism. So, yeah. Yes. That's do you have anything to add, Dylan? Oh yeah, just just one last point. I think it's important to not. I, I think a lot of people have just you know hopped on the bandwagon this uh, perhaps past uh, few weeks or so with with the recent recent events. But it's important to not let you know issues that we face in our own countries. It's important to not let that uh, get out of our sight. So basically, um, I, I I I do acknowledge that you know we we ourselves we are not in a position of too much power in terms of changing. Uh, how our societies run, but what we can do, I think, on a, on a microscopic scale is um, in, in our own daily interactions. You know, if we see anything that we that could be perceived as you know unfair or unjust, we should speak out speak out in those situations, no matter you know how um, how frightening or intimidating it might seem. Yeah, fundamentally, that what we're basically saying is that um, you know um, anybody who's who's been speaking out, who's been voicing out on this issue should mm-hmm. educate themselves on racist, on racism as a whole. Um, this is not something that should be temporary. Um, um, the moment we start to talk about being anti-racist, um, I think that it's a principle that we should subscribe to in all circumstances. It's not something that only lasts for a period of time. So yes. Yeah, so I think just to wrap it up, right, there are so many things that we can do to combat racism. And I think why this issue is so uncomfortable in the first place is because um, none of us are free of racist thoughts. I'm sure all of us are internally at least at least the slightest bit racist. So I think most important is that we change ourselves and then we fight to change the world around us. So yeah, I think we've come to the end of this episode. So thank you, Nick and Dylan, for joining us today. We hope you had fun. And yeah, we'll see you next. Episode. Yep. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you. Thank you.